Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen Thompson and Adam Tooze are going to be talking about the really difficult choices we face when thinking about what to do about climate change. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Helen, you've written about this recently, and we'll tweet the link to the piece that you wrote. And I just want to start with one short line in that article, because it gets to a point that often comes up in discussions about climate change. And I know Adam will have views about this too. It's often said that we know what to do, and what we're lacking is just the political will. And it's a question of political will, and maybe of money too, uh, some combination of changing our politics and investment. And you say, I quote, it's not a matter of political will or money, but physics. So do you want to just say what you mean by that? And we'll take it from there. Okay, big place to start. So if we take the basic question of climate change as, as you've just identified it, David, what shall we do? The principal answer, it seems to me that we're working with at the moment is replace um, fossil fuels in primary energy consumption with non-carbon energy. And that means both um, replacing fossil fuels and generating electricity, and it means replacing fossil fuels with electricity. But how this can be done and or what speed it can be done and with what consequences they have for overall energy consumption is, it seems to me, pretty much constrained by the laws of physics around energy use, not least the amount of energy wastage that goes on from converting one source of energy to um, another. And if we look at what we're trying to do in any kind of historical perspective where energy is concerned, with the exception of nuclear powers concerned, we're trying to move from high density energy to lower density energy, and we're trying to do more energy um, transformations. And this has got consequences. It means that the energy we get was going to do less work. It won't sustain as much activity, and it requires more land to sustain it. Now, obviously... What we're hoping to do is to technologically innovate such that the ways in which the laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics apply to energy are in some sense transcended. But we're so far away from that um, at the moment that the question is really how do we or do we make a bet on whether we can transcend the laws of physics? That is where in the end technological innovation is going to take us when we've got to deal with the timescales that climate change puts in front of uh, so the question, it seems to me, is, is do we need to think more about whether we should be constrained by the laws of physics in, in trying to work out what we should do about climate change? And Adam, just before I bring you in, so then in relation to political will, is the implication of that that we just at the moment when we when people say, look, we know what we have to do, we just have to get on and do it, that by making it sound as though it's just a question of deciding and then acting, we're making it this problem, which we all recognise is intractable in so many ways. We're still making it too easy for ourselves. We're missing the extent to which the choices that we have to make are going to be incredibly painful. It is. I think that it turns what is really a matter of political choice and painful political choice about how to deal with urgent 
questions, and that's before we even get onto the question of what we're going to do with fossil fuel energy in the interim. We're making it out as if we just try harder enough and more politically committed enough, then we will get there. And it's, in some sense, malevolence that is our fundamental problem, or malevolence or denial that's a fundamental problem in in front of us. I think that, that we have to make much harder choices than then that narrative would suggest. Adam, do you think that the choices are harder than we're currently acknowledging? I'm sort of struggling a little bit with this framing, to be honest, because, I mean, obviously, no one's in the business of denying the laws of physics. And, and obviously, everything is regulated by that. And the basic, the two basic problems that Helen points out are indeed the fundamental technical ones. So we're going from, you know, coal and oil to solar and wind. Um, and then we're going to make everything electric. And that involves all these transformations, which are inefficient. So that's all granted. But but I'm I'm struggling really to you know, get with the vibe of, of of sort of tragedy here and this sense of drama because ultimately what we're doing is building a system that will in due course guarantee a better standard of life for many many people um, and furthermore one which is not in the form of our current existence like hurtling over a cliff uh, fast. And, you know, if you look at, say, the recent modelling exercise the folks in Princeton have done for the decarbonisation of the US over the time horizon to 2050, which was featured in a beautiful article in The Guardian, it's not an apocalyptic scenario. It's not even, frankly, a very unattractive scenario. Um, sure, it's a major structural transformation of the US economy, but it's not anything like a kind of wartime mobilisation. This isn't to say it's easy to see how we get there or that current politics takes us there. But I'm not sure that I that I find this framing. I mean, I understand where it's coming from, and after all, Helen framed the oil problem this way too in her, you know, really foundational work on the significance of the oil problem. And I'm not sure I really ever was with the peak oil scenario either. And to me, this is an extension of that kind of, you know, constrained realism in this fantastic essay Helen's done for Engelberg. Like she talks about the problem of tragedy. So this is all being pitched in the tone of a of a you know a classic realism, and I don't mean the dumb sort of realism. And I'm just not persuaded. I think that that's actually the nature of this. You know that, that, that those are the politics, and this is in no way to say that this is easy or that we do currently have the answers. And and Helen's absolutely right to say that this involves a gamble on technologies which don't exist yet. But that, frankly, is the history of modernity. We've not quite gambled like this before in this deliberate way. And as she's saying, against, as it were, the green of previous technological development. But um, so that's, you know, that's where that's where I'm kind of I'm finding it hard to to align with this implotment. I think this is a question really, isn't it, of how what the tone of our narrative is. I don't think we disagree about much of the specifics. So I think I mean, we can separate out some things here, one of which is timeframes, and that's part of the challenge here. The other is the politics of it and you know, what it would mean if we could see the trajectory, but we couldn't quite see how to pass that through the funnel of our current politics. But Helen, do you just want to say why? Because it is very striking in the piece that you wrote that you do use the word tragedy. What the tragedy is as you see it, what's tragic about these choices? I think that in terms of the way that I was making the point where I brought in tragedy in the piece that I wrote was in relation to the 
China question rather than in relation to the overall question, though I certainly don't think one could rule out tragedy where the overall question is concerned. I, I think that on the big picture, if we just stay there for a moment, it seems to me that the point in which Adam and I are agreeing is about where we are in terms of what kind of technological progress that we've made in relation to the problem of so the issue of energy transformation. And I think that I would agree that actually you can tell the story um, of modernity if we're going to use that um, language in which we're constantly making technological bets against the problems that are what have been our fossil fuel ways of life have generated um, for us. And it is quite possible. I mean, I think that I'm I'm completely in this um, camp of saying like to say that, okay, we're not going to make it, that, 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 that there isn't a way of doing this seems to me to be you know, engaged in a kind of dogmatism that, that doesn't really appeal to me and, and I think is just wrong. But I think that the problem is, in some sense, we are in a position of not having the knowledge to know about something where the stakes, in terms of where we've got to, are just on another level to where we've been on any other question about modernity and technological progress and um, energy, because what we are committing ourselves to doing and necessarily committing ourselves um, to doing is something that is off the scale than what we have tried before. And is it also, Adam, is it also that the time framing is the other thing that makes this different? So we've had bets in the past. Some of the crises have been extremely urgent, but the frame is more open-ended, as it were. It's a bet in an, into an open-ended future. This is a bet with a ticking clock. Is that different? I do think that this issue of the future is crucial. And, and, you know, this, I think many people think of the 1850s as the moment when the Malthusian frame collapsed and a kind of an open ended future opened up as the horizon of modernity, capitalism, call it, call, call it what you like. And you see that within political economy, right? You all of a sudden have theories of growth, which don't postulate as a steady state catastrophic or not, um, as their natural endpoint, and reinserting the natural constraints in the way that we have begun to think through since the 1970s, and now really emphatically with climate change, does, I think, change all the calculuses. There's no doubt at all about that. And, you know, I was thinking about, I've got, I'm trying to write an essay about, you know, Biden and climate leadership. And, you know, we're making commitments now for 2030. Forget the 2050 commitments. The 2030 commitments are spectacular you know, 50% reduction by 20. I mean, that's eight years away. <laughs> so, so then all of a sudden, we're in, we're in absolutely very dramatic, very dramatic territory indeed. And the, the force, I didn't doesn't give me hope. But what really strikes me is how quickly capital is beginning to shift its perspectives. Another another issue that Helen brings up very dramatically in her essays, she sees it from the side largely of, of fossil fuel and the dramatic implications for them. But there is a a huge shift going, you know, underway in asset management generally and asset allocation that has to happen. It has to be the complement to, or indeed the driver of of change independently of, of political decision because we have to reallocate not everything, right? We need to be clear. We, we need to reallocate trillions, not tens or even hundreds of trillions, but we need to be, be shifting a couple of trillion a year in the right direction. Um, which sounds like a, an insane amount, but in relation to the size of the global economy, is not. It's not a wartime level mobilisation which any of the scenarios envision, because wartime mobilisation would imply forty to fifty percent of GDP moving, and, and no one's talking that at all. Like five percent would easily get us to where we need to be. 
and 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 capital markets are key movers of that and and they are beginning to react so i think that sense of urgency has really you know i think most people could date it back to 2018 2017 2018 and whether that's going to be enough that is indeed as it were sort of you know in imagining oneself as the retrospective historian that will be the question is whether we got it and whether we were able to enter this you know the downward glide path that we need to be on Helen one way one could put this is that if you go back to that language of political will the advantage that we have is precisely that it is now constrained in temporal terms the clock is ticking 2050 2030 it's possible to set targets that make sense in relation to the problem in relation to the challenge of time and so that's, I think, one of the things that gives the impression that it's simply a question of delivering on the commitments that we know we have to make. On the other hand, for the reasons that Adam said, thinking in those terms outside of wartime is completely new for us. You know, it's, it's as though we've said, well, it should be easy because it's we've got the advantage of the ticking clock. But the ticking clock doesn't actually fit the way that we thought about political economy for the best part of two centuries. And that's the challenge. Is that one way to put it? Yeah, uh, I think though that the the other thing that's got to be unpacked here is, is what or what governments now have committed that they're doing by two thousand and and fifty, which is to get to um, you know, net, net neutral, the carbon's concerned. And so, what we're trying to do in that respect is both to uh, achieve uh, an energy transformation of the kind that we started talking about um, at the um, beginning and find a way via carbon extraction, uh, amongst other things, of dealing with the uh, fossil fuel energy that we'll still be using. So actually we're engaging in two different things in energy terms at the same time by trying to achieve those um, targets. And that raises the question of like what the relationship between the, the two of them um, should be and I think that when you just when we just think about talking about so we know what we need to do and we need the political will to do it with the capital allocation in order to um, do it that still raises a question to me about what the relationship is between those two parts of the the picture and what choices that we make in relation to that so I still think that there's a danger a strong danger that this narrative like oversimplifies just not only what lies ahead in terms of the the need for technological innovation, but the actual political choices that have to be made in order to try to give this a chance of succeeding. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that the carbon capture meme has, you know, is the central anchor of the technophile, techno-optimistic, and in the American case, you know, Republican discourse about this. Insofar as conservative pro-business folks on that in that camp acknowledge the climate problem. Helen's absolutely right that the the solution for them is that the technical fix will come from the side of carbon capture so that we can go on burning fossil fuels. And and so there are two, to that extent, two rather different visions of how we 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 get to to neutrality. I mean, it, it, it's also it's also crucial, I think, to emphasize that as, as, as vital as this point about timelines is that David that David's pointing us towards. Um, it's also highly artificial, right? So, and, and that doesn't—that's not a contradiction. That's just highlighting how political this is. I mean, we fixated on these moments; they are themselves the result of sort of best guesses from hugely elaborate climate models, which suggest that you know, if we were to achieve that objective by roughly that date, then 
they're not guaranteeing anything. They're saying we have a decent probability of being able to stabilize the climate at X temperature. And so, you know, if we hit that target in 2060 or whether we hit with that target in 2065, you know, we're still in the ballpark of climate stabilization politics. And whether we do it by 50 or 65, we're headed towards a world of, of, of dramatic transformation, right? So the, the I thought this was one of the redemptive moments in Helen's essay where she said, like, we do have to remind ourselves that what's not immediately at stake is the question of whether everyone dies, right? So this is not, as it were, a Cold War scenario of like the immediate nuclear annihilation, but the downside of that is what we're basically doing is picking between probabilistic estimates of more or less catastrophic futures, futures right? So the, the, we're operate, we, we make out of what is in fact shades of dark gray these timelines um, of, of extraordinary certainty around which we hope to be able to orientate politics. How long that's going to be survivable, I don't know, because I think, I think our chances of hitting our ambitious targets by 2030 are pretty slim, and I don't really quite understand what the political fallout from that will be. And, and it is partly you know, decadism or whatever it's called. It's the same with pop music as with politics, that somehow the 80s are a coherent thing, it happens to be the end of decades we pick as our dates. And there are there are lots of different kinds of time going on simultaneously. It's our desire to frame this in terms of neat fixed points. There's the steady just tick, tick, tick of the problem itself that doesn't recognize any any of our time frames or decades or anything else. It just is inexorable. There's political time, which is much choppier, but it has rhythms to it, including electoral rhythms. And then there's innovation time, which is even choppier still. I mean, the thing about technological innovation is it is not smooth, right? It, you know, the thing that might make the difference could happen this decade or next decade. And it's it's a kind of gradual and sudden rather than a steady form of change. And these things are all running against each other, aren't they? I mean, I'm not saying they're, they're in conflict, but it's really hard intellectually to run these different kinds of time together. We know since 2020 that there's another time operating in the Anthropocene, right? Which is, you know, the virus time that we were all concerned with yeah. 12 months ago. And, 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 you know, I don't know, the inversion of the Gulfstream conveyor could generate in the realm of the climatic uh, a dynamic which, which has that kind of force. It could be operating on the scale of months and years rather than decades. Well, I would say that there's another kind of time as well, which is is like how you deal in the in the short to possibly medium term with the with the oil side of the uh, the problem as well, because um, it's not that this is an area which is not without its own um, difficulties. Leaving aside all the the, the, the consequences that oil um, using oil has for the climate, we are still going to um, need it in any scenario that we're realistically talking about by 2050, and we can see that the the dysfunctionalities that, in some sense, we were saved from, from uh, we weren't entirely saved from them because they manifested themselves in geopolitical um, issues, but that we were relatively economically saved from, from around the middle of 2014, um, when oil prices slumped, have got the potential to come back into play once the post-pandemic recovery gets underway. So we simultaneously have got to be dealing with short-term energy issues with our existing forms of energy at the same time as we're trying to deal with timeframes around a decade, three decades, whatever it is. Because it's one of the things you say in your essay that there is a tendency to fixate on good years, and we'll come on to China in a second, but as it were, fossil fuel um, carbon production in the Chinese economy goes down, but 
behind the years is a much more inexorable story over decades. And I took from your essay that we we make a mistake if we prioritize the good years over the the longer term trends, particularly when it comes to transitioning away from oil and fossil fuel. Yeah, I mean, if you look at um, a story, the story of where just let's just take oil as an example. If you look at the story where oil's concerned uh, and pick like 2019 and say, okay, look, this looks quite good. We look like we're using, we're 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 not using as much oil. You can tell a story about China that's more optimistic, but you you also got to factor in immediately that 2019 was not a good year for the. Um, particularly good year for the uh, world uh, world economy. You can actually tell uh, a relatively pessimistic story about oil in 2019 in relation to supply um, as as um, well. But I think that we, in terms of understanding the the progress that we're making on uh, on energy, um, need to look in terms of decades. And if you tell the story in terms of decades, in how far, how quickly we are getting the proportion of fossil fuels uh, as a percentage of the our primary energy consumption down it's not a particularly optimistic story i mean i'm I, i'm certainly not committed to a view that simply says because we because it's been slow over the last three decades it's going to carry on being slow for the next um three um decades but it's back to this issue of understanding that this is actually something that is monumentally transformative I mean, in fact, if you look at the overall energy use, right, the astonishing thing is how stable the fossil fuel share is, despite all the brouhaha about alternatives. And furthermore, if you, if you look back in the record, um, you know, the, the drama of the 70s, 80s nuclear push also comes clearly into view. And this is by no means an argument for nuclear, but it remains so far the most sustained effort to break away from fossil fuels that's ever been undertaken. And within the renewable segment, the share of, you know, the old renewable technology, which is large scale damming, um, is is also a really non-negligible factor. Um, so the, you know, the hype around solar and wind um, really needs to be put in, in, in historical perspective, which just drives home the significance of, of Helen's point, which is that those are a qualitatively different type of energy regime because they are so... Um, you know, so they're so lacking in concentration, they just don't give you the kind of hit that you can get from from uh, from oil and coal. So yeah, the historical record doesn't doesn't preclude the possibility we might be able to do this, but there isn't anything there which strongly suggests that we know how to do it at this point. On on China, I think that the thing that's really worth saying, the problem with incorporating China into a long term view, is that the Chinese energy story is actually short term in the sense that in the space of fifteen years they go through a transformation which is like nothing anyone has ever seen on this planet before in any economy ever anywhere. I mean, the surge in fossil fuel and above all coal use in China between basically the late 90s and 2013, 2014 is so monumental that it blows the entire global energy balance out. So there's this weird choice to be made about, you know, taking decades doesn't capture it either. Because if you take decades, you miss the Chinese story. I mean, it's a it's a weird combination of something that's world historic and you'd think would need to be measured in the timeline of centuries or decades, but in fact took place in 15 years. Well, isn't that as well part of the story of like, it is part of the story of the bigger energy story over the last 30 years or so is, is that there's been such a huge increase in primary energy consumption that has come out of China, not only out of China, but obviously most phenomenally um, out of China. So 
anything that's been done in terms of moving away from um, oil, let's say, just keep it there a moment, in, 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 um, in, in Western economies has immediately got to be compensated by saying, well, look, actually, there's been a, a radical increase in, in oil consumption in other parts of the world, China in particular. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, Helen, you also write about, and, and as you said, this is part of where you're framing it as tragic or at least extremely difficult choices comes from, about what it will mean for geopolitical relationships between the West and China to transition, particularly transition to a renewables economy, and that some of these choices are going to be politically very painful for us because, and we're seeing this at the moment, we're seeing it in Britain this week, this is part of the background drumbeat of politics in in Europe and the United States and elsewhere too. One question, a security question about our relationship with China in more traditional terms. And then another question, which is also partly a security question about dealing with climate change. And there is a dependency, a growing dependency on China for some of the raw material and not just China, other parts of the world too, that we might not particularly think of as being part of this story the raw material needed for the renewables revolution. Just talk us through that a bit as well, because that also is part of what you mean by these choices being harder than we think. Well, I think that there's two different things that I would say here. The first of them is against the kind of of language about green energy that sees it as a basic source of political renewal and perhaps even ethical you know, renewal, that we're leaving um, a world uh, that was in many ways, not just ecologically, but humanly damaged. You know, in, 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 There's a way of talking about uh, green politics, I think, in certain kind of climate activism that would suggest that the actual energy transformation itself can be a source almost of ethical renewal of the world. And I'm partly being extremely sceptical about that way of thinking about the, the issues. But I think that the China question is more specific than that. And it's, as you say, David, is that there's a whole set of different issues in play here in terms of the relations between the United States and European countries um, and um, China. There's a set of questions about trade. There's a set of questions about technology. There's a security implications um, of um, both. And there's the reality that um, China is the you know the biggest emitter of carbon uh, in the world, um, and that there isn't any way of having a collective approach to climate questions that absolutely doesn't involve China. Uh, and you can say, I think there's an argument that to make, which Adam um, has made, which essentially would say, and I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Adam, is to say is, is the climate issue itself means detente with China is an imperative. And that might be so. But I think then you can say, well, what will be the, the, the consequences and the ways in which we think about these other aspects of our relations with uh, Western countries' relations with, with China of saying that we privilege China, sorry, we privilege climate over all other um, considerations. So 
I think, though, that that isn't the end of it where the geopolitics in China is um, concerned, because if we look at the history of, of energy changes, is as they bring about geopolitical changes um, more broadly. Um, and at the moment, um, the, 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 the country that's in the state that's in the strongest position in relation to um, green energy um, is China. And so it is part of the reason, I think, why there are enough people in the United States, obviously, particularly in the Republican Party, have been so unwilling, really, to engage with the climate question because they, they regard dealing with it as a means, essentially, of handing the geopolitical advantage over to um, China. Now, I think that's a, a, in terms of overall geopolitical advantage, that's a, that's a considerable um, over um, simplification. But it does mean, I think, that we need to understand that um, everything that we do here in regarding uh, dealing with the climate crisis is going to have consequences. And then they're not all going to line up in ways that we would we would see as positive, that there will be painful choices and some of them might be quite tragic choices. Well, yeah, I do think detente is the best analogy. But, and, and, and one should immediately, of course, add that detente itself was a dirty hands policy. It involved it involved incredibly invidious trade-offs. Um, with uh, working with and finding a modus vivendi with regimes whose repressive authoritarian characteristics no one in the West seriously denied. I mean, there were various types of Western leftism which engaged in the double think of insisting that wasn't true, but there's no reason to do that. The the serious advocates of detente, say, in I know Billy Brandt's West Germany, were not under any illusion of the type of regime they were dealing with with the GDR or in Poland, for that matter, but felt nevertheless that it was crucial to make those compromises for a variety of different reasons. So that's it's in that spirit that I would advocate detente. It's not a sellout to China or a compromise of our own values. It's just uh, trying to figure out what the appropriate rank order is. I think also we need to recognise that our, you know, put it to put it sort of in rather grandiose terms, our world historic situation in relation to China is not that that successful West Europeans and Americans inhabited in relation to a decrepit, increasingly decrepit Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s. So that adds for me an element of kind of you know modesty that that um, that I think is crucial in this context. And in a sense, I think the crucial thing to wrap one's head around is that China is moving on the climate issue regardless of us. I mean, it's moving on the climate issue because it's it's in the scenarios of climate of of, of climate of, of global warming, China is very heavily hit. It's an extraordinarily resource constrained regime. And precisely because it's an authoritarian regime with a long-term time horizon, it actually is trying to calculate what its chances of survival are in a much more dangerous and climatically destabilized world. And so China is acting. The idea that somehow, you know, it's making concessions to us to, to pamper to our liberalism, I just think is completely nonsense. It's nonsensical. And um, on, on all of the key, as Helen's exactly rightly emphasizing, on most of the key industrial policy, technological policy areas, China is, is a leader in part, is part because its market is so huge, but also because its market is new. So Chinese consumers don't have the kind of attachment to internal combustion engine cars that folks in the West do. So that's where the solution of one of the big parts of the puzzle is going to come from. I mean, the Chinese are unlikely to lead in the aerospace area, which is another one of the hard nuts to crack. But you are never going to get to decarbonize steel without China because China makes half the world's steel. So that's where the solution is, you know, out of the, in the endogenously generated technological change is going to come from the place which is doing the production. And so that's going to be 
China. So in all of those respects, I think we need to adopt an appropriately modest and cooperative attitude in relation to the place which is actually going to have to do much of the hard work and where the trade-offs are actually, they're not as bad as they are for low-income developing countries, but the trade-offs are much tougher to China. If you compare like the, you know, ridiculous huffing and puffing the Germans have made up running down their coal sector and the EU is making about Poland by comparison with what the Chinese are going to have to do in their coal sector, you know, we should we should kind of get real and understand um, where the drama of this process is going to happen. In the entire drama of the political economy of climate change is broadly speaking Asian in the current moment, and the the significance longer term are for sub-Saharan Africa. Um, what we have to do in the affluent rich world is really relatively trivial by comparison. And if you are writing about Biden and climate leadership, do you see in in Biden or in the people who matter a kind of Philly Brandt, dirty hands realism, because there is unquestionably within the climate movement, as you said, as there was on the left uh, during the Cold War, there is a kind of moral redemptive streak too, which is very uncomfortable. I mean, the word dirty means something in this context. It is very uncomfortable with the kind of choices as Helen is framing them, those kinds of choices which are dirty all the way through. I, I mean, I, the, the, the gist of my essay will be broadly be that for America to talk about climate leadership is kind of silly and out of touch with reality at this point, because one of the alarming things we're seeing about the Biden administration is that though, as they like to say, uh, climate is everywhere in their policy, right now they don't actually have a coherent plan or anything like it. And the strategy which has been most usually adopted and which America itself pushed, which is a price-based carbon taxing or cap and trade type strategy, which has the advantage of being holistic in the way that market prices can be, has been essentially ruled out, I think, on political grounds, at least so far. Um, so, so no, I mean, the gist of the essay is, you know, seriously, you know, back away from this absurd hubris. You know, a lot of this debate in America is frozen in the polarities of the 1990s, in a sense, where America really was the decisive variable in the Kyoto equation, because at that point, America was overwhelmingly the largest emitter. And the dramatic thing that's shifted, and the least you can credit the American strategists at Kyoto with is they saw this coming, is that they were going to be overtaken by China. Helen's absolutely right that in the background of American thinking about climate is geopolitics, because broadly speaking, the balance of emissions is the balance of global economic power. And even though they didn't anticipate how rapidly they'd be, you know, China would catch up at Kyoto, that was the essential, you know, that is the, Amer- that is the post-Kyoto American position. We won't really sign up to a deal that, that doesn't include everyone. And by everyone, they really mean China. Uh, there's a whole podcast that could be had on the issue of the the US-China relationship, seeing through um, the climate question, which is because it's a it, it's both uh, as as Adam said a hugely consequential um, question because this move where China becomes the largest emitter in the world is is now fundamental to the world fundamental reality in the world and in which we um, live, and I think that it it puts. Obama and then the reaction against Obama in the Trump presidency and the change, the the, the real change in um, China policy that the Trump administration in the end um, brought about in a particular particular political um, perspective because essentially when Obama decided that there was a deal to be done with China uh, and that the US was moving away from the position that it had previously held and it was doing so because China was now the world's largest emitter and then and then and that was a reality that had to be engaged with then i think that is the context in which you get the big political reaction that you do in the united states against the against the 
um, the Paris Accord and the move into treating China as a, a strategic rival. And I think that what's really interesting as well uh, and unconsequential um, is the ways in which we can already see, and I think it was there as soon as China really moved to made in 2025 um, strategy in, in, in 2015, is that China's very success in the green energy sphere also became part of the reason why the United States moved towards a much more, if you like, or aspired anyway, shall we say, to a much uh, a much more active industrial strategy of trying to compete with China. So they actually saw China's success in these spheres as a reason why China was more of a geopolitical rival than generally the American political class had treated it um, as. And I think that what we're seeing now in part is the way in which the sphere of green energy has become part of economic competition for its own sake or industrial competition as well as being about how do we deal with the climate question. So actually we're having a whole set of economic questions that are driving the move into green energy as well as the uh, the climate crisis itself. And Adam, given that the language of tragic realism is most often used in relation to great power politics, do you, is this an area where you can see some of that framing um, having teeth? Um, no. I mean, up to a point. I mean, up to a point. Um, I mean, I, I think there are other there are other options here, right? And um, you know, is this the classic constructivist so-called in IR theory? Like anarchy is what you make of it, um, and and you can indeed imagine scenarios in which. Um, as Helen's suggesting, you know, coalitions are formed around, you know, uh, strategic industrial policy in the United States motivated by hostility towards the Chinese. Um, and that is a that is a politics that's being touted. Uh, Rana Fuhua at the, the FT has, has sort of written along those lines. I think she has some contacts with, you know, national security folks in D.C. who who argue that kind of line. That's an option, I think. It's not necessary um, uh, by any means, and it's not obvious to me that it's the most promising uh, line for us to go down. And we are seeing in Europe, uh, at least, you know, it's, it's still in the era of Merkel's Europe, a, a different vision being articulated, which is the dirty hands engagement, detente style strategy, but but on rather different terms, um, in the sense that, you know, VW's entire strategy for the EV transition depends on on its engagement in China. And so you can also see, you know, uh, a deepening of that doesn't avoid the problems of trade-offs, but it displaces them to a different arena and removes them from the arena of state-on-state clashes, um, you know, which is where that that kind of dark realism is classically articulated. Um, The EU, you know, I will generally recur to it, no surprises there, is after all also a model of a more cooperative joint movement. Um, in which states hustle each other and jostle each other into a collective commitment to to rapid movement. It's not the only way of doing that, but um, it, it certainly has been you know, a driver and is now demonstrating with NextGen EU that it's also willing to put at least some money behind that vision. So can I ask you both the last question, which is about democracy? And Adam, you touched on this a bit earlier, talking about China. It is an authoritarian regime, and therefore, at least potentially, it has different time horizons, but it also faces different kinds of constraints. And there is, there has been for a while a question about whether democratic politics can cope with this challenge. And I often find myself thinking about the choice like this, which is if, if Western democracies were not up to this, 
Now, we don't know, but if they weren't up to this, how would they signal that they weren't? What would be the warning bells? What would it look like? And it might look like now. I mean, it might be signaling it now. I mean, some of the features of Western democratic politics do look like they may be a sign, because this is an unprecedented challenge, that we're not up to it. At the same time, for some of the reasons, Adam, you touched on, if we were up to it, it might also look like now. I mean, we're both delaying, deferring, it's dropping down the agenda, it gets bumped off by other more parochial issues. And at the same time, long-term targets are being set. It's moving up both the agenda in public opinion terms and also in party political terms too. And there are shifts happening. I genuinely think we don't know. I think there is no basis on which to judge whether the successful form of democracy that in societies like ours we've been living with for a few generations is up to this challenge or not. So there's a kind of balance of risk issue here. So one risk would be we think it's not working and it is. And so we change it, make it more authoritarian or make it more radically democratic when actually it was working. The other risk is that we think it is working and it isn't. We kind of carry on like this 5, 10, 15 years, and then we realise we weren't up to it. And I've increasingly come to think if you frame the balance of risk like that, there is more risk to the second than the first, that it would be more dangerous not to change it if it's not working than to change it if it is working. The the democracy which is struggling most dramatically with this is clearly the United States. Um, But I think what that suggests is that, you know, specifying political systems in terms of, you know, constitutional form, democratic as opposed to authoritarian, doesn't quite get us to where we need to get to. Because the problem in the US, you know, you could say it's the, you know, the, the fact they have elections every two years and so on and so forth. But really, the problem is the culture wars that have been enacted at the political level in the United States take your pick since the 90s or all the way back to Richard Nixon and the Southern strategy, right? So if you if you have that kind of politics um, conducted within the frame of a checks and balances 18th century constitution, then, well, then you might conclude, yes, democracy is not up to this challenge because I think the US has a fundamental commitment problem. It's very difficult to see how anything other than Tesla, frankly, fixes the issue. You just need some sort of like a Model T Ford type solution, which is unpolitical, quote unquote, um, but builds a a hegemonic block around itself. But the party political system might might not be capable in the US. I don't think you could say that about the European or the more sophisticated Asian political systems at this point. They seem perfectly capable of building a degree of cross-party consensus over long-run issues like this. And so then the form matters less. Helen, do you have a view on what? Well, I, I think I would just go back in a slightly different way. I take, take the question in a slightly different way to where I started and saying that there are um, political um, choices here because it may be a necessary condition of, of facing up to this that there is some fairly wide political consensus that it is necessary to face up to climate. Um, but I don't think that that means is that we can have a, a democratic politics in, in dealing with this that doesn't allow the ways in which we deal with it to enter it at all into democratic political contest. So, I mean, what I would see happening over the next um, decade or so is actually how to deal with the climate crisis and the different possible responses to it, including where the balance is between trying to move beyond fossil fuels altogether and where the balance is with carbon extraction to that, those questions actually becoming contested in democratic politics. And 
I think in order to carry on having a reasonable amount of consent into facing up to it, we're going to have to allow, we're going to have to hope that some of these questions can be part of democratic political debate. Otherwise, what we're going to see, I fear, is that it becomes another another issue, uh, and here a hugely consequential issue that's perceived by too many voters as being dealt with in a, in a technocratic um, way and that we'll end up having a another political backlash to deal with. We'll tweet the links to as many of the pieces that were referred to there as we can at tppodcast underscore and when Adam's piece about Biden and climate change comes out, you'll find that there too. On History of Ideas this week, I've been talking about Carl Schmitt. Schools are back, but many universities aren't, and History of Ideas is still there for people who want to hear talks about some of the big themes in contemporary politics. If you'd like to support what we do, Talking Politics and History of Ideas, you can do that by signing up to Talking Politics Plus, and you will get versions of the podcast without adverts interrupting in the middle. We welcome your support. Next week on Talking Politics, we're going to be talking to Chris Bickerton about techno-populism, what it is and why it matters. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.